In verses 22-23, we have a summary of much of the Old Testament history. It's interesting here that Jeremiah looks back even as he looks forward. So, um, let's do some dates again. He talks about the Exodus. So, what's the date of the Exodus? Anyone? 1446, 47, I'm going to say 47 for the Exodus. All right. The next event he mentions is how they came into the land. When did they conquer the land of Canaan? What date? Okay. 40 years later. So what do I do? Subtract 40, 1407, and that's the conquest under Joshua. All right. How long is Joshua operative in the conquest and settlement? Probably about 16 years. We'll say 17, which brings us down to 1390. And now what era are we into? With the death of Joshua, the era of the judges. And how long are the judges judging? Within the book of Judges, it actually tells you, okay, Judges chapter 11. Well, let me look it up quickly. Look up the verse quickly for you so you can make a note of it. Twenty-six. Judges eleven twenty-six. Jephthah summarizing the history up to his point says that they had already been there 300 years. So that brings us down to 1090. And who is the last of the judges? Samuel. Samuel. This brings us down to Samuel. The 300-year period of the judges is the period of the Old Testament theocracy. Samuel is the transitional figure between the theocracy and in 1050. What succeeds, who succeeds Samuel, and what succeeds the theocracy? What king? King Saul. And what era are we into? Not the theocracy anymore, but what? The era of the Israelite monarchy. Please notice that the theocracy was not intended to be an eschatological reality. That is, not an earthly eschatological reality. In other words, God himself transitioned, left the theocracy behind, moved on to monarchy. All right, so how long does Saul rule? Twenty-five 
Stephen tells you in his speech in Acts chapter 7, he rules 40 years. So he rules until 1010. Who succeeds Saul? David. How long does David rule? 40 years. So that brings us down to 970. Who takes over in 970? Solomon. And how long does Solomon rule? Stay with the motif. 40 years. So that brings us down to 930 for Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the division of the kingdom. All right, now, there's a brief review there in verses 20 to 23 of Jeremiah 32 of these events, uh, very uh, summarily or condensed, but nonetheless, uh, there's your outline of the history from the Exodus down to Jeremiah's own day. The monarchy continues uh, to 722 B.C. for the northern kingdom of Israel and the Assyrians destroy it, and to 586 B.C., what era we're talking about with Zedekiah's 10th and 11th year in uh, the destruction of the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem in 586. All right, now quickly, uh, looking at some incidental uh, matters here, verse 29 of chapter 32 offering incense to Baal on their roofs. Now, in order to offer incense to Baal, what do you have to be using? You could have an idol, yes. Baal actually would be represented there. What else would you have to have? If you're going to offer incense, what do you mean offer incense? You just put incense in front of the statue you have to have fire right so you're gonna have to have a little sensor a little heating device right so in their day that means you're gonna have to have some kind of like a charcoal brazier or something like that very small one but nonetheless is what you're gonna have to do now I don't know about you but I couldn't put that on my roof because my roof got too steep a gable too slanted when I get up on my roof to put my moss beware, you know, to keep the moss off my shingles. My wife has a fit, but nonetheless has to be done. <clears throat> and I, I, I still don't wobble when I do it, praise God. But in any event, <clears throat> uh, can't do it on our roofs ordinarily. So how could they do it on their roofs? They're flat roofs, exactly. <clears throat> roofs are flat, and so it's just like another living area for them. It's the same way with these drink offerings. Or some of your versions may have a different translation in there in verse 29 to say anything other than drink offering. Libation, okay? What are you doing when you're offering a libation to the God? Why are you doing this? What are you pouring out in your libation? What is your libation consist of? What kind of liquid? Alcohol, wine, right? Okay. It, it's it's not the, the strong wine that we know today. It's not really that strongly fermented. Okay. What, why are they doing it? What, why are you pouring out this wine in front of this statue? Huh? Not really. Not really. 
because they're giving the God a drink. He's thirsty. So you have, you have to pour out a libation or so that he gets a drink. It's one of the reasons that you put food in front of their idol altars. <clears throat> he has to eat. All right, of course, none of it disappears, but nonetheless, that's the point. You see, this, this all has to happen uh, because you've got to feed and give the God's drink. And if you do that, see, if you do good for the God, then what does the God do for you? He blesses you. So what if you give him your baby? Huh? So in this next section, you notice that they're offering, in verse 35, they're offering their sons and daughters to Moloch. What kind of a god is Moloch? He's the god of the Ammonite nations on the east side of the Dead Sea. What kind of a god is he? He's a god that you placate or a god that you satisfy or a god that you endear to yourself by offering living sacrifice, including your child, your infant child, your baby. So you give the god your baby and you burn up your baby before the god and then the god will do good things for you. Particularly this most valuable thing, you see, your child, better than the wine, better than the incense so the better the gift you give the better the blessing you receive right and of course this is the way Christianity works right the more you come to church the more you show that you're a proper uh, a Christian disciple etc you sit in your chair it says the more you do that the more God will get to you right that that's the teaching of the Bible that's the teaching of Rome. That is exactly right. All right, so <clears throat> ancient paganism is replayed in modern Roman Catholicism. Principially, very much similarity. Do this and you will get it back. <clears throat> Pray to the Virgin, you know, make the pilgrimage to the Virgin, uh, <clears throat> put a wreath around the Virgin, etc., a garland, etc. Have, have a statue of the Virgin in your rose garden or whatever, have a little grotto. Okay, then you'll get good things. In other words, this is a works merit paradigm. Okay, so uh, paganism in Jeremiah's day, the very thing that he is excoriating, crying out against, is a system which believes in long-term blessings and short-term blessings. In other words, if I do this for the God, I'll get temporal blessings. I'll get blessings in this world. And if they believed in an afterlife, they believed that they would get blessings beyond this world. I'm not really sure about uh, whether Baalism had, did have an eschatology, but uh, they did have a, 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 a theogony, uh, that is, that the gods had this kind of eschatology, went into the underworld and so on. But I'm not sure that uh, they had any notion of personal uh, eschatology. Okay, any questions about any of that? Yes, because uh, remember, Baal is a Canaanite god, and that means that the Tyrian Baal, which is the Phoenician Baal, is a part of the whole system, and the Phoenicians are the colonizers of Carthage. And so those uh, graves that they've dug up with the child's bones in Carthage is archaeology over 300 uh, infant bodies that they've been able to identify there in that archaeological dig, and there are probably more of them. Uh, uh, this was part of 
uh, what goes along with Phoenician religion, which was also part of Baalism. Does that mean they were worshiping Baal in Carthage? We're not sure about that. But they were practicing the same kind of sacrifices to whatever gods they were worshiping in Carthage. And around the Mediterranean shore, because they found these things other places, not just in Carthage. Carthage is the biggest cache of it. All right. Verse 38. What do we have here? What's What's this verse saying? Label this verse for me. Okay? Yes, this is the covenant formula. This is the formula of the covenant all the way from Abraham on down. Uh, They shall be my people, I will be their God. Or I shall be your God, you shall be my people. Notice that the formula of the covenant, which is this little expression, me to you, you to me, is relational. There's no legal stipulation here in this covenant relation in and of itself. If there is a legal stipulation, it has to come subsequent to the relational. After all, did God say to his son, well, well, I'll make a legal, I'll make a, a legal uh, agreement with you before he entered into a relationship with his son? Or was he a son first before he specified that, lo, I come to do thy will, O Lord? You get the pattern, see? The relational is in terms of that which exists between God the Father and God the Son. If we're going to say there's a covenant between God the Father and God the Son, and that covenant is going to work itself out, then it's going to work itself out subsequent to the relationship. The relationship is going to be first, and then the stipulations are going to come second. This is exactly what Jeremiah is specifying here. You're not talking about any legal disposition here. He's simply saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. We'll have this wonderful relationship. Now, out of that relationship, he can say, okay, now, as a part of showing this wonderful relationship, I will say, I am a God who doesn't murder anybody. Okay, I don't want you to do it either. I am a God that doesn't commit adultery with anybody. I don't want you to do it either. I am a God that doesn't tell lies to anybody. I don't want you to do it either. Okay, in other words, those will be subsequent to it, but it's first of all, I have this relationship with you. And now, out of that relationship, subsequently comes the specifications or the mandates or the commands or the obligations. This is an important point when we think of the covenant. We don't immediately define covenant in terms of law. We We define the covenant the way the Bible does. We define it in terms of relationship. Law supports the relationship. If you don't keep God's law, it's because you don't have a relationship with God, right? If you don't want to keep God's law, it's because you don't want to have a relationship with God, right? So, what do you have to have first? You have to have first a relationship with God, so that now you want to keep His law. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You, love is a relationship, right? If you love the Lord Jesus Christ, now you want to keep His law, because you've got this relationship of love with Him. You love your wife, you love your husband, you have this relationship, okay, then you want to mutually obey and, and, and encourage one another. So that kind of stipulations come out of that. Okay, you get the point, I trust. <clears throat> um, all right, now, uh, verse 40, we've already noted uh, the everlasting covenant 
The word everlasting here is poignant. It points to a type of covenant which uh, cannot be ended. It is an eternal covenant. This obviously points beyond any covenant that was made with the nation of Israel from the time they went into captivity to the time they came back from captivity. This points to a covenant which has something to do with an eternal person, an eternal person and the blood of an everlasting covenant. This has something to do with what Christ brings into history and has something to do with the relationship that is is part of eternity. No covenant in history could exhaust this. So this term here is projecting what we observed last last week, this eternal eschatological feature of Jeremiah's prediction. And finally, note what concludes this chapter, verses 43 and 44, the mention of buying fields. Verse 44, buying fields for money, signing and sealing deeds. Does that ring a bell with respect to this chapter? Loretta, you're smiling. That's what Jeremiah did. The the chapter ends with a ratification of Jeremiah's symbolic act, indicating that as a result of God's promises in this chapter, they are in fact going to experience what Jeremiah experienced in buying a field, recording a deed, that's going to happen when they return from the captivity. All right, any questions about 32? Anything that you had any any comments about? Well, quickly then, uh, let's uh, run over chapter 33 briefly. The first verse, the second time the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Now, this is the same date. This is 587. And how do I know it's the same date? Because of the phrase, court of the guard, he is still where he was in chapter 32. Now, in verse 2, we once again have a repetition of imagery that we found in uh, chapter 31, verse 17. Remember that we asked the question, what images do we have in verse 17 of chapter 32? What image do we have here? What images do we have here? I'm going to put it in the plural. What images do we have here in verse 2 of chapter 33? First image, back to you, Ben. Creation again. Yes, the Lord who made the earth and understood that the heaven is understood. What other images here? What image was in 3217 besides creation? Loretta? Yes, salvation. Okay, because of his outstretched arm. How do I get salvation out of verse 2 of chapter 33? The Lord is his name. Where does that appear for the first time in the Old Testament? In Exodus chapter 15, verse 3, what do we find in Exodus 15, verse 3? It is the song of victory that Israel sings on the other side of the opening of the Red Sea. 
The Lord is his name. The Lord is a mighty warrior. Pharaoh and his chariots as he cast into the sea. You want to hear a choral version of that? The Lord is his name. Listen to Handel's Israel and Egypt. Tremendous choral uh, exposition of that verse. Okay, so the Lord is his name is a redemptive identification of God. How he saved his people even as he did at the Red Sea. This is the God whom uh, uh, Jeremiah is projecting. He is creator and redeemer. Now verse 3. I'm going to tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. Okay, what are these great and mighty things that we already know? We already know them from chapters 30, 31, and 32. One of the great and mighty things we know is a new exodus, don't we? A new creation. A new David. A new Jerusalem. A new covenant. We know many things already from what we've already surveyed in uh, the first three chapters of this section of Jeremiah. Well, what things is he going to make known that they don't know now in chapter 33? The things that he's going to unfold in verse 6 and following. This is where chapter 33 begins to unpack the things that are not known. Verse 6, he's going to heal them. This healing is going to be a matter of restoration. He's going to overcome their most fatal disease, namely the death of the nation. And he's going to resurrect the nation and bring them back from death and exile to Jerusalem and and renewal. He's going to bring them an abundance of peace and truth. Now, as we say that uh, this healing is going to restore them from death, so we're talking about something which is temporal in a spiritual way and also non-temporal because it exceeds the temporal uh, vector. Same thing here with peace and truth. They do not come back in perfect peace and they do not come back in perfect truth. 538 B.C. is not a golden age. But God is going to make this known to them. He's going to make this known to them in a non-temporal aspect. There's going to come someone who's going to say, I am the truth, as well as the way and the life. He's going to come as the Prince of Peace. My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives you, give I unto you. Christ is going to come to exceed the uh, uh, aspect of this in terms of its superabundance. This is one of the things that is not known that God is now going to unpack to them. The same is true in verse 8. He's going to cleanse them from all their iniquity. He's going to grant them an everlasting forgiveness of sin. Through his son, Jesus Christ, which is not yet known to them, and yet he is showing them 
in a foretaste of that abundance of forgiveness and atonement that will come in the blood of his son, the blood of the covenant made in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, there will be joy and praise in it. It shall be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory. What is the reference of the it? Verse 4, this city. The it is a reference to Jerusalem. But once again, this reference here is to a non-temporal dimension of joy and praise and glory. This is a verse which can only be satisfied in an eternal Jerusalem, a heavenly city of God, not as if that can't be manifest in measure when they come back to what was left of the ashes of Jerusalem in 538, but not with this quality. They will not fear and tremble because of all the peace and good that I will do for them. All the good and peace, virtually a promise of eternal good and peace, only in an eternal city, in an eternal heaven. The key word in verse 11 is that word in the psalmodic lines, the three psalmodic lines there, give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. There's that word everlasting again. We're reminded of the eternal dimension of Jeremiah's eschatological projection. Now, your outline has the Psalms in which you will find uh, this language that Jeremiah repeats, Psalm 100, verse 5, Psalm 106, verse 1, Psalm 107, verse 1, Psalm 136, virtually throughout. Please note that all of those Psalms, with the exception of Psalm 100, are redemptive historical Psalms. They are Exodus Psalms, very much as we noted in chapter 32, that Jeremiah summarizes the history of redemption from the Exodus down to his own day. So those Psalms, which were sung or repeated by the congregation of Israel, particularly 106, 107, and 136, are redemptive historical Psalms. They review the history of redemption from the Exodus on down. It is quite significant then that Jeremiah picks out this phrase from those Psalms because once again he's reinforcing this new Exodus imagery, this new sojourn, this new settlement, this new city, this new king, this new David. He's going to elaborate upon that new David beginning in verse 14 and 15 of this 33rd chapter. Now we turn our attention then to that section from 14 and 15 to verse 26, the end of this chapter. For this is indeed something that was not known. This is indeed something that was hidden. This is one of the most elaborate descriptions of the eschatological David. The new David who will come to rule over his people. Notice that he is going to exercise righteousness in verse 15 and administer justice on the earth. Judah will be saved in his days. Jerusalem will dwell in safety. This is the name by which it shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now this has also been used in Jeremiah 23 verse 6. 
So there's a question about the translation here in verse 16 of chapter 33, whether the female pronoun should be used there, or whether, in fact, the phrase, the Lord, our righteousness, is what is being called of this David who is projected here, even as that is true in chapter 23, verse 6. I tend to believe that the two verses reinforce one, reinforce one another, that is 23, uh, 6 and uh, this uh, 33, 16, uh, 33, 17, not, not 17, 33, 16, yes, that they should be translate, translated synonymously and that the reference is to Christ himself. <clears throat> All right, Judah shall be saved, Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. That never happened in 538. Never happened when Jesus was in Jerusalem. Never happened in 70 A.D. It's never happened before or since. And so this is referring to the heavenly Jerusalem and the people of God of the eternal age. Christ himself, the ruler and king and lord of that uh, dominion. Verse 17. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of a house of Judah. There was never a David eyed on the house of the throne of Judah after Zedekiah. He's the last one. Therefore, this is projecting the eternal kingdom of God, the eternal kingship of the kingdom, king who God sets over his, uh, his throne, namely the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now, at the end of this section, mixed in with this section, uh, verse 20 and uh, also verse 25, <clears throat> the, the connection of this covenant with David with night and day. The fixed character of night and day and this covenant with this new David. What is he doing again? He is, he is using creation imagery again. The fixed character of God establishing light for day and darkness for the night. <clears throat> Even as that was a divine act, that is God acting to create. So <clears throat> this is a divine act when he creates this covenant with the house of David. Those fixed patterns, which are duplicated in verses 25 and 26, this is covenant of day and night and the covenant that he's making with David, his servant. <clears throat> Notice that the covenant with David is attached to the covenant of creation, covenant of day and night. This, the, it is a fixed relationship. It is a fixed pattern, even as creation, night and day is a fixed pattern and will endure as long as God intends that pattern to e- exist. The fixity of the covenant. And all of these covenants that Jeremiah is describing are aspects of the covenant of grace. The covenant which is fixed with the people of God in every age. The covenant of salvation, the covenant of grace which is fixed with Adam, with Abel, with Enoch, with Noah with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who are listed in verse 26 of this passage, with Moses, with Joshua, with David, with Hezekiah, with Isaiah and Jeremiah and the prophets. These covenants are covenants of gracious relationship. They are fixed covenants. They cannot be broken. 
They will endure as long as God himself endures. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the covenant of grace will not. It is always and ever a gracious covenant. From the time of Genesis 3.15, it is never again a covenant of works with a sinner. It cannot be, for no sinner could perform a work which would induce God to look favorably upon him or enter into a favorable relationship with him. Which means that the covenant with Abraham is a covenant of grace. The covenant with Moses and Israel at Sinai is a covenant of grace. The covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7 is a covenant of grace. The new covenant that Jeremiah announces in chapter 31 and here again in chapter 32 and 33 is a covenant of grace. It is always and ever a covenant of grace. It is never, ever a covenant of works merit. Never. Never for a sinner. A sinner has only one claim to God, that you be gracious unto me, Lord. Otherwise, you're a pagan offering offering uh, sacrifices and libations to Baal. You're trying to get something from him, whether it's a temporal blessing or whether it's a, a long-term blessing. Don't bring that into Christianity. Don't bring it into the religion of the Bible. That's not what the Bible is teaching you. Not what Jeremiah is teaching you. This is a covenant as everlasting as the gracious God of the covenant himself. It is a relationship as unbreakable as a relationship between God the Father and God the Son. Do you realize that that's what he's done to you? When he calls you his adopted son or daughter, when he calls you his sons and daughters, he places you in a relationship which is as standing and fixed as the relationship between himself and his son. Before you go to sleep tonight, you should fall down on your knees and thank God that you understand that and that he has allowed you to enter in to the adoption of sons and daughters. Because that's the way he looks at his son. He looks at you in his son, the way he looks at his son. And he can no, long, no more break that relationship with his son than he can break it with you. Nor would he ever want to. For in this passage, in the 33rd chapter, he says that he delights in his people. He delights in those who are in this covenant relationship with He rejoices over you. Even as he rejoices over one sinner who repents, he rejoices over you. As a child of his, as a son or daughter of his, Jeremiah projects that in the context of the collapse of this nation. Judah and Jerusalem are within one year of being burned up and incinerated, carried off into captivity, thousands of them killed. In the face of such an onslaught, there is only one thing that you can hold on to, and that is the eternal God, his eternal Son, his eternal covenant, his eternal city, and his eternal heaven. That belongs to you because of the shepherd who numbers his flock. The good shepherd who is part of this 33rd chapter. The good shepherd who counts his 90 and 9, numbers them and finds one missing and goes out find his lost sheep.
I was lost. He found me. You were lost. He left his 99 to find you. He numbers you amongst his lambs because he is both the shepherd and the lamb. The lamb of God who counts his sheep with hands scarred with nail prints. Let's pray. Father, we are enriched, indeed richly and deeply drawn into the marvel of those things that you have hidden and have made known. Made known to Jeremiah, made known through Jeremiah, made known in these last days to the eschatological Jeremiah, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We delight in knowing these things, believing these things, living in the reality of these things. And we plead with you by the Spirit of the risen Lord Jesus that you will write these wonderful truths from Jeremiah 30 to 33 upon our needy and thirsty hearts. Yes, this passage talks about the new heart that God will give. And in fact, it is like his own heart, a heart mirrored in the new heart of salvation, regeneration, and life everlasting. Ah, Lord, our hearts hunger and thirst hunger and thirst for the love of your face, the love of your arms, the love of your majesty and glory, the love of your everlasting loving kindness. Carry us in your arms, the arms of the Good Shepherd. Carries his lambs home upon his shoulders, rejoicing in delight that which is lost has been eternally found. In Jesus' name we bless and thank you. Amen. We're skipping chapter 34 and 35, so next week, chapter 36. Chapter 36.